Goodmanson is shut down by Mike Sell. Oh, here here comes Toppin again. Oh, it's Sanjay Bantar. It's showtime. The Dayton Flyers. Anybody thinks they're not real, you're a wacky. You're a wacky. You're a wacky. This team is legitimate, baby, in every way, every shape and form. Bring on all the big guys. Bring them on. We want those power conference teams. Bring them down here. Let them play against us. Are you serious? Are you serious, Mr. Wachusett? Howie, are you serious? They are for real, baby. They are for real. Hello and welcome to the final regular season episode of the Three Bid League podcast. As always, I'm Tyler, joined by Matt. Matt, the Fordham Rams took a tough, tough loss yesterday in the game of the year of the century. And that means that St. Joe's, for the first time all-conference season, is out of the basement. Congratulations to Ryan Daly, Cameron Brown, and everyone on that St. Joe's Hawks team. So I'm sorry to bring this up. This is sort of a freezing, cold takes, exposed moment. But I have to bring this up. Preseason, you tried to get cute, and you didn't pick Fordham to get dead last. That's the easiest pick of the year every season. You've just got to slot Fordham in at 14th place. And with just two games to play, that seems like a foregone conclusion now that St. Joe's is up a game with the tiebreaker over the Rams. In my defense, when I made that prediction, I didn't think St. Joe's would inexplicably beat Davidson at the buzzer. <laughs> yeah, we, we can never stop making fun of that. So we'll talk about this game for about a minute because I don't think anyone actually cares about it except for us and maybe Ghost McHistory. And the gamblers. But, They're going to care. Oh, the, the gamblers really cared after that insane Fordham backdoor to get them to four on a plus four and a half line. But this was actually funner than most Fordham games tend to be because those games just get so slow and sloppy and their offense stinks. But once St. Joe started turning the ball over, Fordham had no choice but to actually go on fast breaks. And, you know, Fordham's defense kind of broke down in the middle of the second half here. Ryan Daly really got it going. Cameron Brown hit a few threes, and that was all she wrote for the for the Hawks to get themselves out of last place. Yeah, I did. I was interested to see how those styles would clash because Fordham's the slowest team in the conference. St. Joe's is one of the fastest, along with Rhode Island. And yeah, I think St. Joe's ended up speeding up the tempo toward the end of the game, which helped them out. And the Hawks are on fire. That's two wins in a pretty short period of time. So playing their best basketball as we head to Brooklyn. Are they a sleeper? No, they're not. We don't need to talk any more about that. And by the way, for anyone who thinks that this sets the 11 through 14 and that the matchups for the Wednesday afternoon pillow fight are already locked in, you know what? We get a nice preview next Saturday. When 12th place George Mason travels to 14th place Fordham and 11th place LaSalle goes across the city to take on 13th place St. Joe's. And I have no idea why both of these games are on at the same time. ESPN plus better have some sort of split screen feature, but guys, we get to watch the bottom four play against each other twice in four days. (laughs) I just want to go on the record. George Mason's been playing some good basketball. They just took Dayton down to the wire, and they almost beat Duquesne on the road. 
I think Fordham's going to beat them. I, I think that's going to be a huge letdown. With George Mason playing well, they're not going to keep that up going into Fordham. I think the Rams get to two conference wins this year. Well, if Javon Green doesn't play, we might have a combined total of like 81 points in that one. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, I don't really think I want to spend too much more time talking about these bottom-of-the-barrel teams. Are you ready to move on to some just a little bit better competition across the league? Yeah, so we are we're recording this on Sunday night, and we are just coming off of... God, I, I guess it's a, a big upset in the bracketology sense, but it, it doesn't feel like a huge upset given how well St. Louis has played against good teams. But the Billikens go into Kingston and just really put a hurting on an already beaten down Rhode Island team. Jordan Goodwin and Javante Perkins just made every big play the Billikens needed on offense. And their defense was its normal kind of excellent. Really, the best way to sum up this game is it was just a Travis Ford game for 40 minutes. Slew executed everything that he wants from his basketball team. Yeah, I actually thought, even though Rhode Island ended up getting to 62 points with a lot of free throws at the end, I thought this game by the Billikens was one of the most impressive defensive performances we've seen all year. It took Rhode Island six minutes to score their first basket, and they were held to just 19 in the first half. So, St. Louis just won the battle in the paint. Hassan French and Jimmy Bell Jr. came to play. They were just dominant um, around the rim. And when Rhode Island would try to come back a couple times, as you mentioned, guys like Jordan Goodwin just kept making those big plays to end the run. And overall, this is just such an impressive win for St. Louis. They now have wins over two of the top four teams on the road because they also beat Richmond. So just another win in what's been a great season for the Billikens. Yeah, and I I think we talked about this last week, but got to believe that the Billikens are the most likely team to walk into the A-10 tournament and be able to beat anyone on a given night, mm-hmm. whether it's Dayton or Rhode Island or Richmond. But even amid all the buzz that the Billikens could be a potential bid thief, I still just don't fully buy it because I just I think that they need a level of production from Javante Perkins that is just too much to ask of one man over a four day span. Although maybe if they can get to the four seed and they only have to do it three times, that that could change the calculus a little bit. Yeah, and we're gonna get into that more later with tiebreakers because that's really confusing right now for everybody. But I guess one thing I do want to say, even though Javante Perkins has been leaned on heavily, the Billikens had some good offensive contributions from other players that normally don't give them as much on that end. So Jimmy Bell ended up with 12 points on 5 of 6 shooting. He had a great game. Yuri Collins dished out 9 assists. I thought he looked really good, especially in the first half till he picked up his third foul. And then Terrence Hargrove chipped in 11 points, so... You never know if, if St. Louis could get a lot out of these freshmen. I could see them as a potential bid stealer. Their defense, you know, is going to show up just about every game. It's just a matter of offensive consistency. Yeah, and, and you know, I I feel like I'm almost bashing the Billikens a little bit, coming off of one of their best wins of the year. And this team is starting to look so dangerous, but 
there's just not that much to talk about in this game. Like they didn't do anything special. They just played Billiken ball mm-hmm. and they did it to an A plus level. So we got to talk about the implications for Rhode Island. This is their third loss in five games. They fall to 12 and four in the conference. And they're actually the three seed right now because they lose the head to head tiebreaker with Richmond. Things aren't looking nearly as good as they were for Rhode Island even a week ago in terms of bracketology. This loss hurts, but something else I I think we need to mention, their alone Q1 win at VCU just doesn't look that great anymore. I mean, it's all right. It's still a quality win away from home, but VCU isn't the team they were earlier this season. Yeah, and you know, we... We've talked in the past about kind of the conference win line for being able to make it into the NCAA tournament, where basically 14 tends to mean that you're in unless it's a really bad season mm-hmm. for the conference as a whole. 13 puts you on super shaky ground, and 15 is basically a lock. So they're going to have to now beat Dayton to get to 14. And if they do beat the Flyers, then they probably will actually make it. So that line is is actually starting to look like a pretty great indicator once again this year. Yeah, it, it pretty much is. And you could say the same about Richmond, who's 12-4 and four, with two kind of difficult games to play against Davidson and Duquesne. But getting back to Rhode Island, a lot of people have been saying that they have no chance without a win against Dayton. I'm not sure I'd go quite that far, although... If they lose to Dayton on Wednesday night, I think they would have to make a run to the finals of the A-10 tournament and then hope for a lot of other teams to lose. Basically, they've kind of just backed themselves into this corner where they need a lot of things to go their way. A win against Dayton would pretty much erase this loss, I think. I mean, if, if you beat a top oh, five... No, team, it would do more than erase yeah. it. So, like, St. Louis is not a bad team. This was just... A, they just can't afford losses at this point. Right. So, I'm not saying Rhode Island's dead. That Dayton game is going to be so tough, and even though this is a team that, if they're grabbing offensive rebounds, they can match up pretty well against the Flyers. But, as we just saw this weekend where Dayton destroyed Davidson, you know, you you have to play such a great game to have any chance against UD. And I think Rhode Island has that potential. But it's just that's not something you can count on is beating Dayton to save your resume. It it hasn't happened all year in conference play, and while I still think it's possible, it doesn't seem very likely to me. Ah, I'm I'm wavering. I've said since the beginning of January that this is the game where Dayton loses. They end up seventeen and one in the conference, and I, I still felt that way going into this morning, but. The, the biggest reason why I'm starting to hesitate now is Cyril Langevin, who missed Wednesday's game with an injury, he, he looked awful in this game. Mm-hmm. And there's clearly just something wrong with him. And he's so important to what they do defensively, and especially in a game where they're going to have to go up against Obi Toppin. If Langevin is just kind of limping around again, then, God, they're, they're going to need some luck and a lot of it to be able to pull that off. Yeah, you have Langevin dealing with his shoulder injury. Jeff Dowden also had an ankle injury, and he was limited in the Fordham game. 
if those guys aren't 100%, that's going to be tough. I mean, even with Rhode Island at full strength, it's not going to be easy to beat Dayton. But especially for Langevine, you have to be able to defend the rim to have any chance at stopping the Flyers. Today against St. Louis, he didn't really have it, and I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt because of his injury. And still, he played hard out there. He had four blocked shots, and he played the entire game. So I don't think it was an effort thing at all. But you could just tell he, he wasn't quite feeling it today. And hopefully he's able to get himself healthy by next week. Yeah, and the rugby coaching staff really didn't do him any favors. I know they were trying to come back and they needed to shoot threes, but Jermaine Harris sat for most of that second half despite the fact that they were just getting pounded on the boards. Yeah, he only played nine minutes, which I was kind of surprised. I thought he would have gotten a little bit more than that. Especially yeah, I mean, you kind of need that toughness. Yeah, and guys like Jacob Toppin and Mikhail Long weren't – they were okay, but they didn't do much. So I was surprised too, but – We'll see what happens. I mean, Rhode Island, again, I'm, I'm not saying they're out of tournament contention, but it's going to be tough. And St. Louis isn't a bad loss, but this year it's just been kind of unusual. It seems like every year everyone's always seeing how weak the bubble is. But this year we're actually seeing a lot of teams around that cut line winning big games. And that's kind of been what's hurting Rhode Island and Richmond. So. A lot of it really comes down to what these other teams and bigger conferences do the next few weeks as we wrap up the season. But it's going to be close. I mean, Rhode Island's definitely going to be sweating it out on Selection Sunday, one way or the other. So I'll raise the question to you. Which of these two teams do you feel more comfortable in here two weeks from Selection Sunday on their ability to get into the tournament? Honestly, I think I'd go with... Richmond for the simple reason that I think there's a good chance we get a semi-final matchup between Rhode Island and Richmond they're probably going to be the two and three seeds and I think Richmond can beat them they already did it once and I feel like they're just playing better basketball at this point in the season I feel like Rhode Island they've had a thin roster all year and maybe they're starting to get tired legs they're getting worn down and I, I really feel like we could have a situation where we get a semifinal between the Spiders and Rams that's a pseudo-play-in game to the tournament. And if we do get that matchup, I think I'd expect Richmond to win. So that's who I'm going to go with. But what about you? Yeah, well, uh, as I just look at Richmond's team sheet, and, you know, I've been I've been evaluating and trying to predict my own bracketology for years now, and I've tended to be almost a hundred percent every year, not to brag, but um, <laughs> just looking at Richmond's resume, they, they really do look like a team on the cusp. And right now, the thing that's hurting them the most is being four and six combined across Q1 and Q2. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say that they can go beat Davidson at home this week, then go on the road, beat Duquesne, that gets them the two seed. The seven seed is probably going to end up being Davidson in that scenario. So you beat them again in Brooklyn. And all of a sudden, you're above 500 against Q1 and Q2 teams, no matter what happens in that Saturday semifinal. They only have one bad loss, and it's Q3, not Q4. And they have eight Q3 wins. So even though they're scheduled... 
part of their schedule is a little crappy. They end up significantly above 500 across the first three quadrants. And, right. you know, the, the Spiders are just in a chance right now where if they, if they win their next three games, they're pretty much good. It's really a matter of quality versus quantity when you're comparing Richmond and Rhode Island. Because Rhode Island has a bunch of very solid wins, most of them coming at home in the non-conference. But for Richmond, they have wins over Wisconsin, and then I guess their win at Rhode Island. That's better than anything Rhodey's done this year, really. And at Davidson. Yeah, that one too. So, But then after that, you're right, Richmond doesn't have those quad two wins, and they have a chance against Davidson and Duquesne. Both of those would be Q2 games right now. So they still have a couple opportunities there. But overall, it's just very close. And unfortunately, I don't know. I find it difficult to see both of them getting in right now. I don't want to say the three-bid league is dead, but I would be feeling a lot better if Rhode Island beat St. Louis. Yeah, it really does feel like... Whichever one of these, if one of these two teams makes it to the final in the bottom half of the bracket, they're probably good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree with you that the other one's going to be in deep trouble. And at that point, we might need Slu or the Bonnies to step in and steal a bid. Yeah, or if the other situation is if Rhode Island beats Dayton and then Richmond makes it. I, I'm getting, I'm confusing myself. I don't want to do that. It's still possible, but it's it's going to be tough. I'm not not as confident as I was last week, unfortunately. <laughs> All right. So taking it from some shaky bubble teams to the one team that we know for sure is going to be playing in in the NCAA tournament here in three weeks, the Dayton Flyers. We got a very special guest coming on, Matt Ryan of the Blackburn Review, also the guy that most of you probably know as the man who puts out the team efficiency graphs on Twitter. Pretty great discussion about analytics in the A-10 and about his Dayton Flyers. All right, we are now here with Matt Ryan, who has created some awesome graphs for the A-10 to just sort of go into a lot of detail on players and teams across the conference. And he's also contributed to the Blackburn Review this year in their preview articles. Matt, how are you doing? Good. How are you guys doing? Good. Thanks a lot for coming on. Really excited to dive deeper in some of the analytics within the conference. I guess the Love first talking. thing I, I wanted to talk about, how did you get involved just creating these graphs? What sort of got you interested with advanced basketball statistics? Sure. So uh, I, I'm a UD alumni. Uh, I in my day job, I'm a data analyst for a company, so I'm already working with you know numbers and data a lot. But as a UD alum, uh, I'm a huge Dayton basketball fan, and you know not every year, unfortunately, we're, we're not a, a top four team every year, so the coverage of, of Dayton basketball isn't quite as intense as as I would like it to be sometimes. So there are statistical questions that I had, and and a couple of years ago, there really wasn't that type of coverage in terms of uh, looking at the. Dayton and looking at the A10, so I kind of just decided to to do it my myself. So started um, scraping numbers from stuff places like College Basketball Reference, Ken Palm. Um, this year, I, I've really been using a program called R and a package in R called NCA Hoop R, 
uh, that's helped me dive into that data. But really, it all started just kind of because there were, I, I wanted answers to my statistical questions for UD basketball and the A10 at large and, and didn't have a resource to find them anywhere. So what are some of those statistical questions that you, you're talking about? And I guess, has diving deeper into this data answered any of those questions? Yeah, so uh, it, I kind of get a lot of my inspiration from some of the the bigger, um, more well-known writers. Like I mentioned, Ken Palm, um, mm-hmm. Jordan Sperber, um, even on the NBA side, there's guys like Seth Part now who, who do a lot of statistical analysis, and I'll kind of get an idea from them. Um, a lot of my, my focus this year has been about shot quality in terms of um, – how a mid-range shot is a bad shot, whereas a shot at the rim or a shot from three is is usually more efficient. So uh, that's really kind of been my focus this year, looking into uh, both Dayton, who, as I'm sure is no surprise, you probably don't need a lot of advanced stats to figure out that they are very efficient scoring mm-hmm. the ball. They're taking a lot of efficient shots, uh, but especially coming down to their opponents this year, you know, who's who's efficient, more efficient from where, you know, which teams are are scoring well at the rim, which teams score well at three, and then on the opposite end, which teams prevent those shots at the rim well, which teams are are good at uh, preventing Dayton and, and their opponents from taking those threes and forcing them into those inefficient mid-range shots. So it, it, it's really that's really been my focus this year because I think you, you're able to, especially at the collegiate level, uh, you're able to see teams that are able to get those efficient shots. They're, they're definitely usually going to be able a lot more successful than the ones that are jacking up mid-range shots. Yeah, absolutely. As you study these efficiencies, how does it make you feel about the Jalen Crutcher floater? Is it a good shot or a bad shot? Yeah, you know, and a a big thing here to remember is individual players do a a lot of individual, um, you know, I I guess there's there's not really one hard and fast rule for players. You know, we're kind of speaking when it comes to say, you know, a mid-range shot is bad. Um, It doesn't necessarily uh, apply to all players. Um, Jalen, one part of his game that maybe isn't as strong as the others is his finishing at the rim. Um, but that's kind of more on those. I, I noticed a couple, not more so in the Davidson game, but in the George Mason game, where he's trying to almost finish like Kyrie Irving, where he's you know putting those kind of crazy up and under shots. Mm-hmm. But his, his his floater, I, I the data doesn't specifically talk about that floater shot necessarily. It doesn't give me the numbers, but but at least from it, it seems like that's probably one of his his better shots that he finishes at the rim because if there is one area that maybe he he does struggle at not struggle but just maybe not as efficient as as he is from deep uh it is the finishing at the rim you know it's it's actually really funny you guys bring that up because i was going to ask about that later on Uh, when i was looking at your graph that charts players and how well they finish at the rim i was shocked at how Jalen crutcher was one of the worst in the conference and then i kind of figured a lot of it had to do with those floaters that maybe don't get captured as being at the rim since they come maybe six to eight feet away from the basket. But I did think that was really interesting how just watching him play, I mean, he's he's efficient on those floater shots. He's gotten way better at them this year. But yeah, I guess I, once he gets to the rim, it's maybe not quite the same. Right, exactly. And, and that kind of makes sense, especially in a conference like the A-10 where mm-hmm. there's a lot of, you know, big bodies at the rim that are going to, you know, be physical with him. And, and that's not his game. You know, he's definitely a, a three-point shooter and he, he's really good at finding um, 
the open man and, and assisting his teammates and, and finding them in their um, in their open position. And I, and I was looking at speaking of jail and, and his assisting ability. Uh, I, I was looking at a chart this year. I've, I've been charting when ESPN has the data scraping the shot locations mm-hmm. and every shot besides two shots. And now the, granted, this isn't every game because ESPN doesn't have the data for every Dayton game this season, but every shot besides two shots that Jalen Crutcher has assisted on this year has either been a three or at the rim. So even though he's not necessarily finishing well at the rim, he he finds his teammates who do. And, you know, on Dayton with a guy like Obi Toppin and even Trey Landers and, and maybe Watson and those type of guys, you know, they're really good at finishing at the rim. So he he's able to find those guys on a consistent basis. Yeah, that is really interesting. Just, I mean, in general, Dayton too. They're they've been by far the best team in the conference at finishing at the rim at just around seventy two percent on those shots, which I I think would be a big um just reason for their overall efficiency and success. So I, I guess I wanted to sort of step back to your previews that you do for Blackburn. I'm just curious. You you talked a lot about looking for like efficient shots and just valuing possessions, but are there any other key stats you look at? first when you're just trying to paint a picture of a team and evaluate their overall strengths and weaknesses yeah so uh in addition to the type of shots that they're taking especially for Dayton this year um I think the looking at that offensive rebound rate for a team is is really important um you know that's def I think we know that's been a a struggle for the Flyers all year Mm -hmm. all season this year um, and if there's a team that's got a high figure in the offensive rebound rate, we know that, you know, Dayton's either going to have to really work hard and, and um, try and limit those opportunities as much as possible, or they're going to have to score, you know, that many points because it, it's more than likely that they're going to give up uh, those offensive rebounding rates. And and it wasn't in a preview on Blackburn, but it was, I, I kind of took a deep dive on the problems uh, that Dayton has had on the off- offensive glass, mm-hmm. giving up those chances. And it, you know, their their offensive rebound rate that they give up this year it isn't necessarily a high number, um, but I found that they give up a higher percentage of those offensive rebounds uh, against the Ken Palm top 100. So you know, obviously Colorado, Kansas are the first that come to mind, but even you know, even though they were wins, VCU, St. Louis, Duquesne, those type of teams definitely give. Um, Dayton a, a harder time you know they're getting those second and third opportunities to score um and you know you can't give a, a team who who has a clear talent gap like those last couple that we mentioned with Dayton you know second and third chances so um that's definitely something that I've been focusing on this year and then another one is the two-point percentage that the teams have been giving up we obviously know that Dayton is very good at, at scoring at the rim and in, at those two point field goal baskets. Mm-hmm. So if there's a team that has, you know, is more defensive oriented, that's again, kind of another bad matchup, you know, again, your, your VCUs, although maybe not so much recently, but yeah. definitely Duquesne, definitely St. Louis. Um, mm-hmm. You know, th- those are, are really the ones when, when we're looking at Dayton, those are the stats that, that I really look at first. Yeah. I think we just saw a couple hours before we started recording the St. Louis had just an excellent game defending the rim against Rhode Island. I think in particular, we've already seen it twice this year. That's a team that I would be scared of if I'm Dayton, just because with the Billikens ability to defend the rim and their offensive rebounding, I just think that's such a difficult matchup. I've been saying it's the toughest matchup for Dayton in the conference, just because it's a physical team. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and guys like uh, French and, and, 
and Goodwin, you know, they're guys that are going to really beat up, you know, Obi inside and really make them make Dayton earn everything that they can get at the rim. So if, if I'm not sure what that win did to maybe get him out of that eight, nine game that might have to see Dayton play them in the second round. But, you know, if, if they keep winning and, and maybe move out of that, out of that first round uh, or first uh, game that Dayton would have to play, I certainly would be happier. Yeah, no, I, I would say that would be good to avoid the Billikens as long as possible. They're they're starting to play well at the right time. So yeah, and it, sorry, it seems ahead. like most Flyer fans are pretty afraid of that Billikens matchup when once the Flyers get to Brooklyn. But is there any other team that you're maybe looking at as someone that could have a particularly strong chance of upsetting the Flyers once we get to New York? Yeah, I've been really impressed with uh, Duquesne both times that they uh, played Dayton. You know, obviously Dayton jumped out to that really big lead in Pittsburgh, and then Duquesne fought back uh, mostly under the um, the play of, of Michael Hughes. I think I wrote in the second preview that that I believe he had fourteen. You know, Dayton went up nineteen, and from the time that Dayton went up nineteen in the second half, Hughes had fourteen points by himself. You know, pulled down about three or four offensive rebounds, had a steal, and really nearly put, you know, brought uh, Duquesne back into that game on his back. And, you know, a guy like him and Weathers, those are the same type of guys that we've been talking about where they're physical, you know, they, they block a lot of shots, they get a lot of offensive rebounds. Uh, they're really going to make Dayton work. So um, I, I think Duquesne definitely has a, a a chance to upset Dayton, maybe if they were to, their pass were to cross again in Brooklyn. Um, one team that I think we can definitely cross off a list that won't give Dayton trouble. And it, I don't think it's just recency bias, but a, a team like Davidson, where you know their their focus is on offense, um, they're not necessarily going to be physical. They're going to try and outscore Dayton, and, and I mean, unless Dayton's really having an off night shooting, I really just don't see how a team like Davidson could keep up with uh, the Flyers. But any physical team like Duquesne, um, maybe St. Obviously St. Louis, if if Rhode Island. Um, gets over their troubles after today and maybe we're going to see Dayton in the final. I, I think those are the type of team that would give them trouble. So when you've created these graphs, um, just analyzing one particular stat for each player within the conference, I'm just curious, are there any big surprises that you've noticed that you wouldn't have expected based on just watching games? Is there anyone that really stands out to you? So, one of the things that I've been kind of focusing on is the um, the improvement in true shooting percentage mm-hmm. and improvement in usage rate since last year, and he he's kind of gotten a lot of a lot of um, a lot of praise recently. But Trey Landers, he's improved his shooting percentage more than any other returning A10 player. Uh, since this year. Um, next to him is Fats Russell, who unfortunately had a Fats Russell of last year game uh, earlier today. Yeah. But Trey's, I, I, I mean, last year, I remember that Trey Landers shot 20% from three. And this year he's been hanging around. At one point he was up at 40%, but I believe he's went down a little bit. Uh, but he's still in that 35 to 37% range hitting three. And if you can have a guy like that, you know, that teams aren't going to be able to focus on because they've got Jalen and they've got Obi to, to worry about. If you have a guy like that hitting two to three threes a game, you know, he's going to definitely still do that dirty stuff um, where he's going to get the offensive rebounds, play tough defense against a guy who's probably bigger than him, but still give him a hard time. Uh, you know, that's really 
that that's what makes Dayton so good. And then, you know, like I said, even though he had a, a really, really bad game against uh, St. Louis, where I think he shot only made like four field goals and mm-hmm. scoring 14, but Fats Russell has improved his true shooting percentage from 11.1. I remember last year when Dayton was playing Rhode Island, uh, I, I was happy to let Fats shoot it down the floor and you know I thought that was a win for the Flyers every every possession but this year he's really been that you know tough guard where he's he's figured out what's the efficient shot for him and he's improved his his shooting percentage um 11.1 percent but the big thing for me is that he's being used more he's Mm -hmm. even increased his usage rate by uh one percent so he's Using, being used a little more in the Rhode Island offense, and he's being efficient out with today. Um, so Fats has really been a player that's been impressive to me outside of Dayton. Yeah, I, I think Fats Russell, overall, he, he gets a lot of criticism for the games that he just had today against St. Louis. But he, he's just changed his game so much. And I think you're right. Last year, you wanted him to take a lot of shots against you because he wasn't efficient. He wasn't getting as many points as he should have but this year it's just it's been so much more fun to watch and then as for Trey Landers too I think Dayton fans obviously give him the attention he deserves but I feel like he's a guy that kind of falls under the radar outside of Dayton just because he doesn't have the greatest counting stats he only I I bet he's at around like 11 points a game so that's not going to jump off the page but you're right he just does all the little things and I think that's part of the reason why he he is so efficient this season yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Matt, who do you see as kind of the efficiency MVP across the A-10? Maybe a guy that doesn't have the fantastic stats of an Obi Toppin or a Fats Russell, but is someone who should be considered for all A-10 first or second team that maybe isn't right now. Is it Trey Landers or is it someone else? So outside of, I mean, obviously Obi's the the – one that that everyone knows about you know he's he's a shoot three-point shooter now mm-hmm. <laughs> he's he's you know nearly unstoppable at the rim uh but to go back to Duquesne I think Marcus Weathers is is a guy that's been really efficient this year he's he's averaging 1.34 points per possession which is one of the higher totals he's he's above average usage rate in terms of mm-hmm. everyone else in the conference so he's a guy that you know he and he's it, what I find is a lot of people who who maybe don't know what analytics and basketball kind of deals with when it comes to shot selection. You know, you get the cliche talk about, oh, it's just all three pointers. I mean, Weathers isn't taking many three pointers. He's he's a guy that knows where he belongs. He belongs in the paint. Um, I think he's one of the highest usage in, when it comes to uh, post ups, but he's still an efficient player. So he he's one that's been really impressive, and it's kind of been in terms of another player that that's kind of in a similar boat. Um, obviously, VCU's kind of uh, gone off the rails here, but. Marcus Santos Silva has always been a really efficient player. I, I noticed him last year. He's always had a really high points per possession. Um, and, and I think he, he'll, he's a player that really benefits from having um, being in the paint and, and, you know, getting those touches down low. And, and he's another one that, you know, although I, I think his season might be coming to a, a premature end here in the next couple of weeks, mm-hmm. uh, I think returning next year, he's going to be another dangerous player for VCU. Yeah, I am yeah, excited and- to see Santo Silva. Um, I know last year he sort of surprised everybody, and he ended up being VCU's most efficient player. This year, even though VCU hasn't been as good, I think it's been good that they've gotten him more shots. He's their highest used player now. And I agree next season. I mean, 
it's going to be his team, so that should be exciting to watch. Yeah, and you know, you you mentioned both Santos Silva and Weathers, and I think that those are two guys that are kind of a perfect blend between old school and new school guys in terms of how you can evaluate their greatness. Where, yeah, you're right, they're both super efficient from kind of an analytics standpoint, but at the same time, the reason that they're so good is because they're both kind of more so old school players where they're just so much more powerful than all the other guys at their positions and they can keep getting to those efficient spots on the court. Yeah. And that, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying before, where, you know, people associate post-ups with being inefficient, you know, there's, especially in the NBA, it's not necessarily an efficient play there, but in college basketball where Marcus Weathers can, you know, be stronger than 99% of the people that he plays against. Marcos Santos Silva can be, you know, athletic and use his strength to, to back down people and get second chance points and offer rebounds. You know, it is an efficient play for those guys to be in the paint and be back to the basket. So again, it's not necessarily, there's not one hard and fast analytics rule where that says, this shot is good, this shot is bad. It, it depends on the player in the situation. So shifting topics just a little bit, I'm looking at your offensive and defensive box plus minus, and I couldn't help but notice Michael Hughes has a pretty commanding lead in defensive box plus minus over other great defensive players like Cyril Langevin and Hassan French and Oshun Oshunayi. Could you just explain a little bit what goes into that uh, calculation? And then I'm just curious if you agree that Hughes is better than all those guys or if you think it should be closer than that. Yeah, so I want to kind of preface this by saying with offensive box plus minus, offensive and defensive box plus minus is kind of more something to use as an overview. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily to say, you know, Hughes is definitely the best defensive player. Um, He definitely benefits from being on a defense player first team like Duquesne where he's got guys like um, Weathers and, and, you know, guys that are going to play tough defense with him. So he kind of benefits from that. Um, it, it, it's a model. I, I take this data from uh, college basketball reference. And, and like I said, it's just kind of an overview. Mm-hmm. So no, I definitely wouldn't say that, that he's necessarily better than those guys, but I think it's a good overview to say, okay, Hughes is a good defensive player. Suni's a good defensive player, you know, Deontay Jenkins, you know, those type of guys, Trey Landers, Obi, uh, you know, those type of guys are good, but not necessarily that this guy is better, necessarily better than, you know, anyone else in, in the conference with box plus minus, you kind of want to keep that in mind. It, mm. it, 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 a lot of team factors come into determining that. So you don't want to necessarily say that, um, make any, you know, declarations based off of plus minus. Right. Yeah. I, I kind of figured that it's sort of like war in baseball, I guess, where you don't want it to be the end all be all, but I, I did think it was interesting. And overall it, it did seem accurate in some ways just as a general guide how a lot of especially the centers and other big men that have the reputation of being great post defenders they kind of do rise to the top in that graph so I just thought that was interesting um nothing like totally unexpected I guess just from looking at that yeah and there's you know unfortunately for Fordham there's a lot of players in the the negative uh negative offensive box plus minus and yeah. defensive box plus minus. So that kind of makes sense. You know, that kind of is, again, what we're seeing in terms of uh, effective team, you know, even though um, Fordham is, is a surprisingly decent defensive team, you right. know, there, there's players kind of in that negative quadrant for uh, both offensive and defensive plus minus. Yeah. I just think Fordham's been one of the most unusual teams because they are one of the very worst 
offensive teams in the country. Oh, yeah. They're, and by far in the A-10, too. They're awful. But I, but I thought, you know, especially at UD Arena, they they played Dayton pretty well defensively. You know, they, yeah. they unfortunately couldn't couldn't score to save their life to, to really make Dayton worry or anything like that. But it's just, it's really interesting that, that they're, you know, kind of okay defensively, but really just maybe one of the worst teams in the country in terms of offense. Yeah. And I think one of the surprising things I thought at first when they were just shutting down teams in their non-conference, I figured that was their schedule, but that actually kind of translated to the A-10. But unfortunately with their offense, I mean, they, they can't beat anybody. So it's not like that makes them a a good team. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And I'm really glad you mentioned Fordham because a lot of your specific game to game recons are done for Dayton games, obviously doing your work for Blackburn, but you put out a special one this week for the game of the (laughs) year, the century between Fordham and St. Joe's. So any, any comments on that game? It it, it really lived up to the expectations of being just really, really bad and really, (laughs) really not enjoyable to watch you know I, I i hype myself up thinking oh yeah you know that maybe it'll we'll see something great defensively from fordham or, or maybe we'll see you know ryan daly go off and go crazy and, and score like 60 points on it on his own to carry st joe's to uh to a victory but it was definitely you know the afterwards i'm like yep that's definitely a, a st joe's fordham game from this year that's definitely what i should have expected instead of expecting something good it was close though it was competitive you know at least but because those are two very bad, bad basketball team. So it, it definitely lived up to my uh, bad basketball expectations. Yeah. Wow. See, I thought that was one of the most entertaining Fordham games in weeks just because people were actually scoring and it got sloppy <laughs> and fast. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, uh, maybe I'm I'm spoiled watching Dayton and even, you know, because Dayton obviously is one type of basketball where, you know, a lot of ball movement, a lot of scoring. And then even, you know, I can find beauty in a team like Duquesne or St. Louis where, you know, they're playing tough defense and, and they're playing. So maybe maybe I'm just spoiled in, in that fashion, looking at mostly focusing on the uh, top half of the uh, A-10 here. Yeah, you you also clearly didn't have a gambling interest on the four and a half <laughs> in that game because That's that true. made the final two minutes absolutely. Absolutely wild. Yeah, that definitely would have made people more excited, I bet. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So I guess one more thing I want to end on. Uh, Just going back to Dayton, we talked a little bit about their offensive offensive rebounding weakness. What else do you think needs to happen for the Flyers to make a a deep run into March Madness? So really, the... The, they obviously, um, you know, need to keep scoring. I, I, I got a little worried the last couple of games before the Davidson game about the scoring. You know, Ibby Watson wasn't hitting threes. You know, even Trey Landers started to to miss some threes, and, and he seemed to be missing more and more free throws. So um, it, it was a little worrying to see their shooting um, kind of maybe start to take a dip compared to the high standard that they set for themselves the rest of the season. Um, but another thing that, uh, that that's a little worrying to me is the uh, turnover rate. It, it, it's just a little high in, in terms of a team that, you know, once has final four aspirations and even mm-hmm. national championship aspirations. And, you know, it's really weird. It, it feels really weird for me to say that um, as a flyer fan, that they, they're a legitimate threat for a final four and a national championship. Um, but I think just, tightening up things like the turnovers and the offensive rebounds um, will really, you know, get them to where they need to be. Because to be honest with you, you know, they could be shooting well, they can be um, 
you know, playing good defense like like we've seen recently. Um, but when it comes to March Madness, you know, it's it, it's all about matchups. And if if we're lucky enough to avoid, you know, one of those kind of physical Big Ten teams, the the second game of the tournament, uh, you know, who knows where the Staten team can go? But but it's really all about matchups. You know, you get lucky and get a good matchup. Uh, you know, it, it'll really benefit you. you. You face just the wrong team on the wrong day and maybe not hitting all your threes and season's over in one game. So, um, yeah, I, I think they just need to keep, you know, working on on turnovers and offensive rebounds. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I'd agree with that. And um, I just think that unpredictability, too, is what makes the tournament so great. So looking forward to that, and hopefully we, we can see Dayton keep their season going for a little bit longer. So, Tyler, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, I had one other just – and you know what? With with Dayton, it feels like we're almost nitpicking to find concerns. But one other small thing. You actually put out a pair of graphs this weekend just revolving around the foul shooting and three-point shooting as the season has gone along for the Flyers. And the percentages in both have taken some minor dips here in the last few weeks. Is there anything that you're seeing when you watch these games that it is really kind of telling you why this is happening? Like maybe some tired legs, maybe better scouting from the A-10 teams, anything like that? So game to game, especially for three-point shooting, there's really a lot of variance. You know, it'll swing one way, one game, and it'll, you know, where Dayton's making a lot of shots, and then maybe another game we'll see a regression to the mean where they're you know they're they're missing a few more than we would expect. I, I don't think that they took you know the last couple of games took bad shots or, or or you know forced anything. In fact, in the George Mason game, I feel like they passed up a lot of open threes trying to get to the basket. You know maybe you know made one too many more passes than they should have. Um, so I, I really think it's it's you know just kind of some normal variance and some normal regression. Um, their free throw percentage has been pretty consistent at 70%, you know, uh, against Davidson was actually probably one of their worst free throw shooting games of the, of the season. I think they shot a little bit over 50%, uh, but that's been pretty consistent. So I, I think we can expect Dayton to get, you know, 70%, you know, of course, we're, if, if it comes down to end of game in March madness, maybe to go to the sweet 16 and, and, you know, there's a, there's a pressure filled free throw. Um, we're obviously going to remember that one a lot more than, than maybe the the 11 or 12 that they, they made out of the 15 they took before. Um, but in terms of both, it's really just kind of uh, all I've seen is just kind of some natural variance that I think happens uh, when it comes to the course of the season. Um, you know, hopefully the the bad variance has, has gotten out of their system and it'll only be, you know, 50% shooting nights and from three and, you know, 85% shooting nights from the free throw line as we go into March Madness, because, you know, if it swings the other way and it's a 23% shooting night from three and a 50% shooting night from the free throw line, you know, the season will end a little earlier than I think Dayton fans want to. Yeah. Well, I guess one more thing I want to add, hopefully they keep shooting 96% from two because <laughs> that, that was, was crazy. Just absolutely incredible <laughs> against Davidson. Yeah, and that's kind of goes back to the matchup thing that I was talking about a little earlier when it comes to March. You know, Davidson doesn't have that big body that's going to stop anyone from from getting to the hoop, especially a team like Dayton. So if we, you know, maybe not necessarily Davidson, but either in the A-10 tournament or or in NCAs, if we face a team like that's offensive first team like Davidson, I think Dayton is going to maybe not put forth where they, they don't only miss one two-point field goal, but I think mm. that we can expect them to put forth similar performances. Yeah, 
I would agree with that. So hopefully we see some good matchups for the Flyers. And with that, I guess, Tyler, are you, do you have any other questions? No, I mean, we've gotten some great analytical insights here from Matt. So thank you yeah, for those. I feel, I feel smarter for having had this conversation. And that was part <laughs> of the goal of this podcast. So I, I appreciate you guys having me on. You know, love, love talking a ten hoops and Dayton hoops, and it's it's really been an incredible season for a Dayton fan. So that's made you know looking at the numbers uh, a lot more fun when when you have to have to make charts and, and graphs that show a, a team scoring only or missing only one uh, field goal attempt from the four. That makes it a lot more fun for a Dayton fan. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks again for coming on. You guys can all follow Matt at Matt Ryan eighty six. Make sure you keep an eye out for his graphs for the A10. Um, just really great work, and it, it helps explain a lot of the statistics within the conference really easily where just anybody can view those and learn a lot more. So with that, uh, thanks, Matt, for coming on. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Big thank you to Matt Ryan for coming on, educating all of us on some of the big analytic numbers that could be either good or bad for the Dayton Flyers as we move into March here. But changing gears, we are heading into the final week of the regular season, and the double buy race unexpectedly heating up after a pair of St. Bonaventure losses. The Bonnies now sit at 10-6, and six, as does Duquesne and St. Louis, all three being tied for that four seed. And by the way, the Bonnies head to Chaffetz on Saturday night, so... No matter what, we're going to see at least one loss out of this. So I guess really the easiest thing to say here is with all three facing a pretty tough schedule, if they if anyone can just go 2-0 and this week, they're probably going to get to the four. Mm-hmm. But really just to put it as simple as possible, the Bonnies control their own destiny. They go 2-0, and they get the double bye. Duquesne needs to go 2-0, and and they need the Bonnies to lose a game. St. Louis needs to go 2-0, and and they need Duquesne to lose a game because of the tiebreakers. Obviously, Duquesne 2-0 and head-to-head against St. Louis this year. That's easy. Bonaventure and St. Louis haven't played yet. Whoever wins Saturday will have that tiebreaker, although whoever wins will probably be ahead anyway. And Duquesne and the Bonnies split 1-1, one and one, so it goes to common opponent, Duquesne being 0-2 against Dayton puts them below the Bonnies, who is who are 0-1 against Dayton. All right. Hopefully everyone gets that. It's pretty complicated. That that always seems like what happens every year in the A-10 when we get down to these last couple double-buy spots. The last week of the season, there's just so many things that can happen. Although I am really excited that we get St. Bonaventure and St. Louis on the last day of the season. Because there is a good chance that the winner of that game gets the four seed. So that should last be exciting. Game. Yeah, it is. You're right about that. So that's going to be exciting. And I really didn't think we would be having this conversation this week because the Bonnies were in control at the beginning of the week. They had a two-game advantage over everyone, but they lost to LaSalle on Saturday, and then their loss to Duquesne earlier in the week also bumped them down. So we're left with a three-way tie. And I'm not also, I'm not sure, did you mention if there is a three-way tie Duquesne would finish above due to their record within the group. Yeah, it just seems so unlikely because you'd have to have Duquesne go one and one. 
then one of the teams between the Bonnies and the Billikens would have to lose on Wednesday. Right. And then the opposite team would have to win Saturday. And that's how we end up with a three-way tie. It would probably have to be St. Louis losing to George Mason, which could happen. That's on the road. But St. Bonaventure gets St. Joe's at home. I really don't think St. Joe's is about to go on a two-game winning streak. So you're right. That is kind of unlikely, but just something that could happen, which is why right now as we record this, Duquesne actually is in control of the four spot since there is currently a three-way tie. Yeah, and this whole this whole thing started on Wednesday night when the Dukes went into Olean, knocked off St. Bonaventure in overtime. And it was a game that really went the way that Keith Dambrot wanted it to. When we talked to him a few weeks ago, it was on the eve of the Duquesne-St. Bonaventure matchup in Pittsburgh. And he made it a point that he wanted to really attack the Bonnies early, try to get a Sunashunahi in foul trouble. And that worked in the first game, but then Amadi Peasy played great, and the Dukes' big guys kind of tired out. In this game, it did work, and it was Michael Hughes and Marcus Weathers really powering the Dukes into overtime. And then at that point, it was the sincere carry show. Yeah, this was a fun game to watch. Both teams were having a lot of success close to the basket. Each team had 17 offensive rebounds, so the big men on both sides were just keeping possessions alive, which was fun to watch. And both teams were also over 50% on two-point shots. So overall, a pretty good offensive performance when you account for the second-chance points. And the way the game ended, we're going to talk about that soon. That was very interesting. But overall, that's just a huge win for Duquesne to bounce back from their first meeting with the Bonnies. Yeah, and the way the game ended, uh, this really wasn't even how it ended, but I think I know what you're going for. (laughs) Uh, Duquesne down two late in regulation, Sincere Carey going to the line, and somebody throws a balloon on the court. Because apparently the Bonaventure fans really want to keep getting teed after the VCU game incident. Yeah, I would feel like after that event, like what was that, three or four years ago? I feel like that should be at freshman orientation at St. Bonaventure University. Because a ton of students there go to the games. It's a tiny school, but they get a great student turnout. They should hand out these little flyers with the student handbook. Or just make it the first page of the student handbook and say, do not interfere with what's going on on the court, because it cost them once before. This time it ended up not mattering, because they didn't call the technical foul. And also, I was happy, so we should explain. They waved off Sincere Carey's first free throw that went in. I would have felt absolutely terrible if he missed one of the other two free throws, but he ended up making them all, so it, it didn't matter at all, but still... Just such a funny moment from that game, and the fact that it was St. Bonaventure makes it even better. That was insane, too. That that should have been treated like a lane violation. That's where what I Because thought. the ball went in, you count the shot, but had Kerry missed, then you give him a reshot in that situation. Yeah, I mean, I was someone, like, I really didn't care who won the game. I was just watching it as a neutral fan. And I, after that happened, I was hoping Kerry would make the next two, because that, that would have been such a terrible way to lose. But it, as as I said, it, it didn't matter because he made them both after. And then the Bonnies, yeah. or sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that the, the star of this game and the, the real story that got over, that got obscured by overtime and by the balloon 
is the guy that Matt Ryan was just raving about, Marcus Weathers, who mm-hmm. was just badly hobbled the last time these two teams played. And he hasn't looked like himself all the last few weeks of the season. And Duquesne finally admitted this week that he has an ankle injury. And if you watched him, you kind of saw it the last few weeks. But he looked great in this game. And he was back to the the powerful, dominant Marcus Weathers of old. They really just didn't have an answer for him. I know they tried Justice Win- Justin Winston on him a bunch. And it, it worked a little bit. But other than that, the rest of their wings are just smaller guys. And that's the Marcus Weathers matchup nightmare that we're used to seeing. Are you looking at the right box score right now for Duquesne? Because I'm seeing something quite different for Marcus Weathers. I'm seeing four points in 17 minutes that game oh jesus i i i said marcus weathers i meant to say michael hughes that makes a lot more sense that's okay no i mean you're right that michael hughes he's been an efficient player too this season and he had 18 points with three block shots so that makes more sense and i We're gonna leave this in and do the pti error segment that's totally um, fine yep. so so half of that stands marcus marcus weathers has looked hurt all year i guess not all year the last few weeks mm-hmm. he actually looked healthy in this game early on and was crashing the boards but then kind of slipped away in the second half yeah michael think... hughes was a dog in this one. Oh yeah it was his best offensive game of conference play and was really kind of dominating Ashunahi. I think he wanted to knock Asun off of all, de- all off of all defensive team to open up a spot for himself. Maybe, although I mean, watching those guys go at it was fun because Ashun ended up with twenty three points himself and thirteen rebounds. So even though he had a little bit of trouble on the defensive end compared to how he usually does, still, I mean, both of them offensively played really well, and just that big man battle was fun to watch. That was probably the best matchup of the game, I think. Oh, yeah. that I mean, that basically decided the game. Mm-hmm. I guess Kerry and Lofton both came alive late in the second half like they did last time. But, yeah, it was really about the battle between Hughes and Ashunahi for so much of the night. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess one more thing. I don't know if you have anything else, but I, I wanted to bring this up. With the extension of the three-point line, we've seen a ton of guys step on the out-of-bounds line waiting for a pass. And this has frustrated me so much. Bobby Planudis did it three times, which I thought was pretty funny. I mean, I felt bad for him after the last one, but <laughs> how does that happen more than once? Let alone three times. I just couldn't believe it. And unfortunately, that in a game that's that close, every possession matters. So <laughs> very unfortunate for the Bonnies there. Yeah, I've, I've also never heard Dr. John so baffled by something. <laughs> I love Dr. John, too. He's such a great sport because he kind of alluded that Oshun was committed to LaSalle at one point. And then he's like, oh, what happened there? And he's just such a, he's the best. He, him and Matt Bartucci are the best broadcasting pair in the conference. And I agreed with your tweet that night that it would be great if they were able to call some A-10 tournament games. No, not some. They should call the A-10 tournament. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, And I think this is a good carry into all of the hype and everything that happened Friday night with Dayton Davidson. Because the Vital thing was awesome because it just gets you excited for the game. And you realize the magnitude of how good this Dayton team is that Dick Vital wanted to go to this game. Mm -hmm. But then I'm listening to the 
broadcast in the second half. And he's just so clearly reading off of a note sheet that some intern wrote for him, as opposed to having Dr. John, who not only knows these teams very well, but just clearly does his film work and homework during the week. Yeah. And this is one of the big problems with college basketball, where you have so many announcers just doing too many games that they don't put in the proper work. And by the way, Matt Martucci called four games in five days. He was on George Mason, Dayton, then Duquesne Bonaventure. I think he had the night off on Thursday, but I don't know for sure. Called some random Northeast Conference game on Friday and then was on the game of the year of the century on Saturday. Yep. Eight different teams in five days. And of the three games that I listened to, he seemed to know he, – he knows his stuff on all six of those teams. So that's a credit to a guy who – who really pays attention and does his homework before the games. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think those guys both do a great job. As for Dickie V, I mean, first of all, that was so exciting for him to come to Dayton, which I know people have mixed opinions of him, but I don't think anyone loves college basketball more than him. So that was just cool for him to be in the arena that night. But (laughs) one thing that I thought was funny, so I was at the game, so I didn't get to watch his call of the game until the next morning when, yeah, I... I did watch it again because it was a fun game, but uh, at one point I was looking at my phone in the second half and I saw a bunch of people tweeting about how he started talking about Duke out of nowhere, and it's like, come on, Dayton's playing the biggest game of the night on ESPN2, it should be all about the A-10, and we're bringing up the Dukies, like, come on, man, that was the one complaint I have. Yeah, but Dick Vitale did deliver the announcement that game day is going to Dayton next week. Although not in UD Arena because the women's A-10 semifinals will be blocking the arena at the time of game day. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Maybe it gets warm enough to put it outside. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think it is supposed to warm up next week, but still no word on where it's going to be on campus. But that's so exciting. I was shocked. I think everybody was shocked because, I mean, let's face it, no offense, but... Dayton's playing GW for their game on Saturday, and that's not exactly one of the big games of the week. But that, and, sorry, you know, by off. the way, it's it's going to be a Saturday at 11 a.m. at UD. I think it's going to be about 50 degrees that day. There's really only two appropriate spots to put it. You, I think you could fit the desk on, on the uh, the rock-filled front yard on Lowe's. <laughs> or you go with the elevated surface and you put it, you put the desk up right behind the four logo wall. <laughs> yeah, there are our UD listeners will will get those. Um, those would be great places for it. But I'm just I'm excited to see what happens. And actually, I was thinking about it. I do think I have an idea of why game day is coming to Dayton. I'm pretty sure it's just so Jay Billis has an excuse to come hang out with Ryan Mikesell. Right, I mean, we heard we heard everything during Maui. I, obviously, that's one of his favorite players, and I think he just he's got to be there for. I, he won't be there calling the game, but Jay Billis has to see Ryan Mikesell on his senior day, right? Well, Billis has also just put himself on the island where, if Dayton goes to the Final Four this year we're going to hear about it for the next year about how he knew in November (laughs) and he, he has just hitched his wagon to this team all season long. And 
I think he really believes, and we, we all know about Jay Billis's ego. I mean, yes. for God's sake, we we of a thousand followers on Twitter said that he was not the number one national media bandwagon guy for Obi Toppin. He was actually number two, and he got deeply insulted by that. I forgot. So we we know Jay Billis. He when he has his thing to brag about, he goes all in on it. And this year, that's the Dayton Flyers. Yeah. Can we also mention how mid-major it is that game day is coming to Dayton and the game itself will be on ESPN+. Plus. I think that's pretty funny. They're not moving the game to the best of my knowledge. It's still 7 o'clock on the Plus or on Spectrum if you live in the Dayton area. So, Well, they, can't, they actually can't put it any earlier. They could put it later, but yeah, that's about it. Because the arena's booked up for, for the women's tournament, but... yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure it's mid-major because they keep doing this with the Big 12, too. You're right. I guess I do. I did want to spend some time on that. So the A-10 Women's Tournament is starting this week. Everyone, or sorry, not everybody, but 12 teams will be playing campus games on Tuesday night. And then the winners of those, plus Dayton and VCU who got buys, will advance to the quarterfinals on Friday at UD Arena. And then Friday through Sunday will be the rest of the tournament. So that should be exciting. I know Dayton's had a great season in women's basketball, too. They had an undefeated streak going on for a while. So we'll see what happens. Unfortunately, I don't think the women are going to be a three-bid league either in the A-10. But should be a good tournament. I'm hopefully going to try to make it to the championship on Sunday since it's in town for me. But, yeah, that's just another sign we're getting closer to March Madness, too. Yeah, and my last comment on an amazing Friday night for Dayton uh, everyone got fired up about the 27 straight twos. I went back and rewatched the game. It actually shouldn't have been a thing. What happened? Obi, Obi missed a tip with about four and a half minutes left in the oh, first half. Yep. And I guess that they just ruled that he just never secured the rebound, which technically he didn't. But you can make a very strong case that that was a miss. Yeah, I know the player talking about that. I guess that's kind of a judgment call. He... Kind of just bobbled the rebound, I guess. So they gave him the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, either way, going 27 for 28 on two-point shots, plus missing the first one of the game, that's something you might never see again. So just an incredible offensive outburst from Dayton. And it's honestly not even that surprising because it, it didn't even seem like they were playing a special game as it was happening. It, it just felt like a normal Dayton game this season. Yeah, and so... We'll, we'll kind of end the episode on this. As we head into the final week of the regular season, the chatter for awards is going to really start to heat up. And, you know, we're, we're missing some of the big debates this year. We know that Obi, Anthony Grant, and Trey Mitchell are all going to be taking home some nice trophies next week. Mm-hmm. But the arguments for the other things are going to start to heat up. And So before we get into some inevitable Twitter arguments over them, I I just want to point out a few things I've kind of thought about this week. Number one, most improved players are just going to be a a disaster this year because no one actually knows how to vote on it because it's not defined in any way. So if you want to talk about a a guy going from pretty good to superstardom, then that's Obi or Fats Russell. If you want to talk about a, a guy who goes from a bit player to a borderline all-conference guy, that's A.J. Wilson. Or if you want to talk about a guy who went from basically the end of the bench to just, 
becoming one of his team's most important guys, then that's Arnell Potter. And so I think that that's going to get interpreted a lot of different ways. And no matter what, a fan base is going to get fired up on that. Yeah, the, that is going to be a tough one. Also, the all-defensive team, as we saw from our poll, or our polls this week, the bracket you created, a lot of people had strong opinions there, too, and there are just so many good defensive big men in this conference, so I'm interested to see how that shakes out. Honestly, I think you could make arguments for a bunch of different guys there. So that's the other one I want to talk about, is it should be one last week of an incredible race between Hassan French, Asuna Shunahi, Cyril Langevin, and Michael Hughes for the two big man spots on that team. But this is where it, it, it becomes a factor that it's the coaches that choose these awards because this tends to be more of a reputation award. And part of that is just because the coaches aren't going to sit here and check the stats. They, they got games to prep for. They don't have the time mm-hmm. to dedicate two hours to figuring out their all-defensive team. And so I think reputation is going to really hurt Michael Hughes. He doesn't have the rep of the other three. And then because there's no positional designations and everyone loves voting for centers and point guards, I think all three of them are just going to end up on the team. So I, I think there's, I think we kind of are going to lose a lot of the drama that we would have normally had. Just because the, the, the way that these awards tend to go, I think those three have probably already locked in their spots. And then it'll probably be Gilliard and Fats as the other two. Yeah. I don't know. I, it could go a couple different ways. Um, no matter what happens, there are going to be people that are upset, which is always what happens. People always feel slighted when it comes to talking about defense. But, oh, well, it's just it's that's kind of more subjective than a lot of the other awards. Yeah. And so I guess our, our final segment of the episode, unless you have something else to add. I'll let you start us off on stat of the day. Yeah, so this one, um, it's borderline. Maybe you won't consider an a, consider it an A10 stat, but I, I think it's pretty funny. Right now, Rutgers is sitting at 9-9 nine and nine in the Big Ten, so they would have to beat Maryland and Purdue to secure a winning record in the Big Ten, which probably won't happen because they're on a three-game losing streak. You have to go back to 1991 for Rutgers' last winning season in conference play, and that's when they were in the A-10. So basically, ever since they left the conference, it has not been going well for the Scarlet Knights. So mine is, it's not even a creative stat. I'm sure most people have seen it by now, but second 20-win season since the 70s for Duquesne. The other one was the Aaron Jackson team that made it to the NIT, and for a lot of people, especially like Dayton and VCU fans, I'm sure that that really means nothing to them. But for Duquesne, this is a huge accomplishment. 20 wins has always been this kind of barrier of a great Duquesne team. And there, if you want to see more, you can go to the Duquesne basketball Twitter account, which just firing out stats like crazy yesterday. Uh, I think it was – the second no no actually i believe it's the first time ever they've won double digit conference games two years in a row just all, all these different stats have basically said that this is one of the two greatest duquesne teams since the 70s and you know it's as they go into a tough last week of the schedule and then the a10 tournament just a, a chance to shout out 
the work that Keith Dambrot and those players have done for Duquesne. This is one of their best teams of all time, and things are only getting better for the Dukes. Okay, so that actually reminded me of one more quick question I want to ask you, and then we'll sign off. Do you think VCU is going to accept a bid to the CBI? <laughs> so I, because of how well they started the first three months, if they can right the ship and win their next three games and then lose to like Dayton or Rhode Island the quarters, I still think they have a shot at the NIT, but... I'd say no, given the expectations they had going into the year. I don't think they would accept a bid, but they should because they have so many young guys. And if they finish the year up strong, then I think you go into that and try to get your team ready for next season. I think they should, but just so they can hang another banner. They already have one CBI championship banner at the Seagull Center, so... Why not try to... I don't think anyone's ever won two CBIs, have they? They could make Uh history. Has someone done it? I forget who it is, but someone has. I've looked this up before. Wow, that's that's a bummer. Well, either way, sorry, I had to get my VCU joke in there. We didn't really talk about them today. All right. Yeah, so that that seems like as good of good of way of any to wrap up this episode, the final one of the regular season. We will be back next week. We will wrap up the final week of the regular season. We will give our personal awards ballots. And we will preview the Wednesday pillow fight along with the Thursday second round games of the tournament. And then it's off to Brooklyn. We'll be bringing you guys episodes at the end of the day, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to wrap up the happenings in the A-10 tournament. So stick around for that. Be sure to listen in. Be sure to tell a friend. Give us five stars on iTunes. Leave a comment. And thank you guys for listening. Brown, fourth.